Thank God for Jesus Christ, and I appreciate the song, just uh, the little line, I want to live for you because of Jesus. Appreciate that, that nugget of truth, uh, brothers and sisters of our worship team. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, uh, we continue our worship service this morning by looking to the book of Titus, and I want to welcome again just all our visitors and guests with you. I got a chance to greet some of you, uh, uh, whether you're from uh, nearby, local, or just a little bit uh, farther away, and it's just so glad to worship the Lord, our God, with you. And pray that this morning, uh, time, because of your time here with us, that you'll be drawn closer to our Lord. And we begin our new year, really, with a new series, a new series in the book of Titus. And so if you uh, uh, want to turn there, we're going to be going through over probably the next, I think, about four, four to six months or so, we'll be in Titus, uh, studying this pastoral epistle, and uh, that God may use it to encourage us and build us up as a church. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Uh, this is really the salutation of the letter. Every, every epistle starts with a salutation. The, every Pauline epistle starts with a, sal- a salutation, a, a kind of introduction to the book. And, and uh, <clears throat> sometimes we just, we just gloss over this section whenever reading Pauline epistles. Kind of like, oh, it's kind of just, just saying, it's like, dear Titus, it's me, Paul. You know? And you're like, oh, okay, you know, it's moving on, you know. <clears throat> But there is a lot of truth in here that we can learn this morning as we look to this, uh, this particular section within the, within the scriptures. All right, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. If you're there, let's, let's all rise and let's hear the word of God. Uh, I'll read for us these four, brief four verses. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Savior, or our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we we acknowledge that that our desire is to to know Jesus Christ more. Father, we, we know that you give us your word to do just that. Help us to grow in our knowledge of our Savior through the study of Titus. Help us to grow as a church, to become more of the kind of people that you want us to be, in our individual lives as, as Christians, in our relationship with one another here as a church, in our relationship with the world. Father, we pray that your spirit would take your word this morning and minister to everyone who's gathered here. Lord, cause your word to go forth and speak to each heart here exactly that which they need to hear from you. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is an eternal word and that is a powerful word. We thank you that your spirit is the one who is our teacher this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would take your word and teach us and mold us into the kind of people you wish us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> this morning, as, uh, uh, <clears throat> as we begin, I'd like to ask a, a question for us, a, a question that's a practical question as a Christian, but it's also a very theological question. And here's the question for us. 
uh, to sort of, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and, and we are, okay, that's, these are just reformation solas uh, that we're kinda, we, we as a church have taught throughout our time together. And by the way, it's the 500th anniversary of the, the Reformation this year. And so we are, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus Christ alone, then as Christians, as those who are saved, are Christians obligated to obey the moral law of God? Is it required of us? as Christians, to obey God's law, God's word. You think about it for a little bit, and it, it's, if you're thinking a little bit, you want, you'd probably want me to qualify. But uh, <clears throat> just think about it. If we're saved by grace, not by any works, then can it be said that Christians are obligated to obey God's law, God's word, Sort of a trick question. You want to say, no, right? No, it's not required. But if you say that, if you say no, and the answer is actually yes, we'll talk about it. If you answer no, then you hold to something called, what's traditionally called, or antinomianism. Antinomianism, try to say that a couple times. Antinomianism. And this is a doctrine, and whether you know it or not, it's actually a doctrine that's anti and against, no master law. It's a, do- a, lo- a doctrine that really, as, as Christ- a belief that we're opposed to the law. Now, the do- is the doctrine that the moral law is not binding upon Christians as a rule of life. That's essentially the general uh, gist of it. Now, you could hold this and, and still say uh, that, oh, well, you know, you, it'd be good if you kept the law. It'd be good if you are, but it's not required. It's not, you're not obligated to do so. It's not binding upon you. God's law, God's word is not binding upon you. And that would be wrong. This is, uh, by the way, this is Baker's uh, di- Dictionary of Theology. Now, the reason is if you, <clears throat> the reason is if you, obedience to Christ is not a necessary consequence of faith in Christ, then in effect, theoretically, you can live whatever way you wish, right? Now, you know this, this attitude, that you can live whatever, I can go on and just live all my life because I know that it's not, I'm not obligated, I'm saved by faith, I can then live my life, I, God's forgiven me, I believed in him, and so I can live whatever, whatever life I live and and, I'll, and just do whatever I want, because even if I do sin, uh, well, God will forgive me. But Paul framed this attitude in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 13, I believe. He said, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? That's essentially the same question. Shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin because we're no longer under the, moral, or under the, the, law, the Mosaic law, but we're under grace? How does he answer? May it never be. May it never be. Yet sadly, many Christians, many Christians, many, and sometimes maybe some of us to some extent, live like we're not Christians. We do whatever we wish. We say whatever we wish. We believe whatever we wish. Our mantra is, do not judge me. God is my judge. They may say that they believed in Jesus Christ and Christ forgives them, but what's important, what's important they, and, and, that's what's, and that's really what's important. I've got my, in a sense, I've got my ticket to heaven. I can, and then, but that's my excuse 
for going on living in sin. See, antinomianism, in effect, allows for justification, that moment when we are declared righteous before God, our, the initial salvation, without sanctification, as without the increasing holiness and obedience to God's word. Is that possible? Can you be saved and not grow in holiness? Can you know Christ and not obey Christ? Can you believe in the truth of the gospel and not grow in godliness? This is not asking, can you be a Christian and, and not sin? We're all sin. We're talking about a, a pattern of life, a pattern of life in our, where we are maybe are Christians, but we continue living as if we're not because we declare, I've been saved by grace. Through faith alone and not of any works. The book of Titus answers these questions and more with no, 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 and may it never be. Titus teaches us, according to one commentator, that sound doctrine goes hand in hand with the life of sanctification and the doing of good works. This, this book, Titus, is a little tiny book, three chapters. We'll probably finish it in four months or so. I think I was dividing it up about 12 sermons. It's often entitled in the section called a pastoral epistle, the pastoral epistles. And when I hear the pastoral epistles, I, as a, particularly as a young Christian, I say, oh, that's a letter for pastors. So if I'm not a pastor, then oh, I, don't need to, you know, I don't need to focus on this book because it's, it's, it's really just for the pastors or the elders of the church at the least. So non-pastors, yeah, you just move right along. But that would be a mistake, brothers and sisters. This book not only is not just a book for pastors. It's a book for all of us. It's a book for all of us as Christians. It's, a very, it's pastoral in nature, yes. But it speaks to how we as a church ought to live and, and conduct our lives in a manner worthy of Christ. This letter, this letter to Titus is often called a conduct manual. It teaches Titus and the Christians on the island of Crete that, where Titus is pastoring that faith in Christ our Savior will lead to conduct that is characterized by good works, good deeds. And like all Paul's letters, he begins with this salutation here in these four verses. Every, all his salutations have a, identify the sender, the recipient, and the greeting. And those are going to be our kind of three points we're going to uh, hang our hat on. And if you will, that's where our outline for us this morning. But hopefully, we won't just know, oh, it's a sender, recipient, and the greeting. But we'll see the significance of the sender, the recipient, and the greeting towards the development of the theme of Titus. And the theme of Titus is kind of the title of our sermon is truth that leads to godliness. But I also will, I'm going to kind of flip around as I speak. I'm also going to sometimes say faith that leads to godliness because you're going to, we'll see that truth and faith go hand in hand. So sometimes I'm going to call it truth that leads to godliness. Sometimes faith that leads to godliness. Both the knowledge of the truth, both faith leads to God. So that's where we're going to go today. And then we're going to look at these three introductory matters. Let's take a look then. And hopefully it'll be edifying uh, and kind of and, uh, encouraging to us as a church to heed with the theme of Titus and cause us to want to study it as, in the next few months. So number one, the first introductory matter is the sender. 
Who's sending this letter? Well, sender Paul is Paul. He identifies himself uh, pretty clearly in this letter. He says, uh, uh, which, which he does in the first verse, Paul. If, when you look at his identification of himself, usually he's pretty quick, short about it. He'll go, Paul, uh, a bondservant of Christ, a bondservant, or Paul, an apostle of Christ, and Timothy and Titus, or Timothy and Silas. He'll, he, usually it's very short, his, the sender section. But only in... In this letter, it's the, and Romans, does he actually expand the sender section? So Romans, you can understand why he would make a lengthy introduction of himself because he had never gone to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. He, he'd never been there, so he wanted to introduce himself to them. He was a stranger to them. But he wasn't a stranger to the people of Crete. He wasn't a stranger to Titus either. But <clears throat> he, didn't, he didn't get much time to to know the, Crete, uh, the people of Crete when he visited the first time, because the first time, he, it was in Acts 27, when he visited as a prisoner. He was on his way to Rome. And the second time, we find reference in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where he brings uh, Titus with him, and he leaves him on Crete. Isn't a, so understandably, he, he wants to establish who he is to these the believers on Crete, the church, these Christians, he wants to establish his credentials so they'll know why they ought to listen to him and not the, the growing number of false teachers that were in their midst as well. Why should I listen to you versus these other guys who say they're also teachers of, about Christ? Who are, and we'll, kind of, we'll see them in uh, the latter half of chapter 1. So in these three verses that he introduces himself, he identifies four marks Four marks of his ministry credentials. Four reasons, really, if you will, why you should listen to him. What he's about as, a, as the one who's writing this letter to the people on to Titus and then to the people on Crete. First of all, he emphasizes his ministry authority. His ministry authority. And he does this in every letter. He identifies what is the source of his authority. Who is he that, he, that we should listen to him? And he writes in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Paul, the, the persecutor of the church turned missionary for Christ. I just heard a, just a wonderful uh, review of this in our Sunday school, adult one Sunday school class about how Paul was saved on the road to Damascus when the, glory, the risen Christ appeared to him on the road and called out to him and, and shortly after brought him to saving faith but had on that road to Damascus set Saul apart for a ministry of reaching Gentiles, Greeks, for Christ. In uh, Acts 13, Paul would be set apart by the church in Antioch, by the Holy Spirit, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And by the end of his third missionary journey, he had took three of them, he was eventually arrested and then in Jerusalem and sent to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. And on the way on that, we, sometimes it's called the fourth missionary journey. You ever see your maps in your Bible? It's called the fourth missionary journey. He's, his, the ship that takes him t- stops by on the island of Crete. But there on the island of Crete, he didn't have freedom to minister the gospel because he was a prisoner. He, they wouldn't, even let, they wouldn't um, you know, let him freely roam about the land. So that probably was the first time he visited Crete. He wanted to go back and minister to the people on Crete. Following his release from prison, so after Acts chapter 28, he and then took uh, brother Titus, and they traveled back to Crete to reach the island for Christ. Here in the first half of verse 1 then, he identifies himself with two descriptions. First of all, he's a bondservant of God. That bondservant, the word bondservant really is the Greek word slave. 
Now, when we have in, the Amer- we in our American culture, we, this word slave just has a lot of you know, negative connotation. It's, just, it's very strong. But in the Greek culture, in those Roman culture that days, uh, a majority of the people were slaves. It was actually, it was just like, you know, how we might say, are you, you have a, it's someone who's employed. Uh, but a slave, nevertheless, still has some basic connotations. A slave is someone who is committed to uh, humble service to a master. He's answered. He has an obligation to serve a master who, in a sense, has authority over him, who owns him. He is one who is a representative of his master. He must fulfill his master's will. He can't just do whatever he wants. He must do what his master wants. And Paul, who has been set free in Christ, declares himself, identifies himself as a slave of God. A slave of God. A bondservant. That's his authority. But make no mistake, just because he's a slave doesn't mean you can ignore him, right? Someone is a, because uh, he's a slave, not just any old slave, he's a slave of God. He's a messenger of God. And he emphasizes this when he, with his second term, when he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. He's a capital A apostle. He is Christ's representative and messenger. And so as a servant of God, as, a mess- as an apostle of Jesus Christ, his words are not just his own words. His words are God's words. His words are Christ's words. What he speaks is, a re- is the words of Christ and the words of God to the people of Crete. So this is his authority. He's not coming based upon anything of himself, but simply that he is a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now that's his ministry authority. Secondly, we see his ministry aim. He, he describes his mini- the aim of his ministry as a slave and as an apostle. He says, it is for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. His ministry is for a particular purpose. It's a, somewhat a, it's a twofold purpose, but it's really intertwined. They're intertwined. Firstly, his ministry, his aim of ministry is for the faith of those chosen of God. <coughs> it's so that the chosen of God may come to faith. Now, when we see this word chosen of God, it is a reference to the doctrine of election, divine election. And sometimes, especially when we're younger believers, when you get across, come across this doctrine of divine election, it's a very difficult doctrine to, to grasp. Because we're not used to having somebody completely sovereign over our lives, especially sovereign over salvation. But in Paul, it would write later on in second, or elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says... We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The reality of, that Scripture teaches, and we see it in Ephesians chapter 1, all over Ephesians chapter 1 as well, but in Romans chapter 8, like God has chosen, he is from eternity past, from the beginning, chosen some particular people, individuals, for salvation. He has chosen them that they would believe. And if you think about it, especially when you're first grasping it, it is a difficult doctrine to grasp, isn't it? It was for me, I know that. Because you know why? Because I'm all about fairness, right? Aren't you about fairness? We're all about justice. Why, 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 the, our, why many people in our world is, are angry right now? Because we want justice. That's not fair to those people or those people or to me. And that's a good attribute that God's created us with. We are, have a sense of justice, a sense of fairness because of God our creator. 
But when it comes to God choosing some, but then the implication is that, well, why didn't he choose all of them? Why didn't he choose all the rest? Where's the fairness of God? He's a just God. Isn't he? Well, I can't believe that kind of God who lets people go to hell. But the profound reality that Scripture teaches us is that apart from divine election, apart from the fact that there is a sovereign God who can bring dead people to life, who can turn hearts of stone into hearts that are beating with life in Christ, is because God in his sovereignty has chosen some to respond to the gospel with saving faith. He does the work of regenerating our hearts so that we would believe Only divine election ensures that there will be anybody who responds to faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you guys out there say, you know, I'm glad that I saved myself by believing in Jesus? None of us, right? No one gets there. I mean, when you're a young Christian, maybe you think you did. But eventually you walk with Christ long enough. You realize, oh, man, it was God's mercy. God was merciful that he caused me to see who Jesus Christ is and and become respond in faith. Faith, too, Ephesians 2.8 as well, is a gift of God. It's all a gift of God. Now, the reason, now, when, to answer the charge of fairness, Paul answers in Romans 9. He says, well, who are you, lump of clay, to tell the potter what to do with me, the clay? Does not the potter have every right as a creator to do whatever he wishes with the clay? Do I have any right to tell you what to do with the piece of wood that's in your backyard? I sure hope not. It's your backyard. You're the owner of it, and God's the owner of us. He can do whatever he wills with us. That's, that's what Paul had in France. He's like, well, so we might understand why. There is really, a, we don't understand why God chose some and didn't choose others. It was just simply to bring, oh, the short, and the short answer is that to bring glory to himself, and that he, we trust he's good, and that he has a perfect reason, his, in his perfect reason in himself to do that which he wills. But that's his aim. He aims for faith of those chosen of God. But his secondary aim is intertwined is this, that he aims for the knowledge of the truth. He's for the knowledge of the truth. And before anyone can believe, they have to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? Before you can believe, you have to know the truth of the gospel. And this word, the knowledge of the truth, really is another word for the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, uh, Paul would write, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. God does, does desire. This is God's desired will. We just talked about God's decreed will of whom he chose to be saved. But here in verse 4, he's talking about God's desired will. His will is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we see salvation and the knowledge of the truth equated. That you must have the knowledge of the truth in order to be saved. And if you're saved, you'll have the knowledge of the truth. And what is this knowledge of the truth then? This really is the, which is the truth of the gospel. He elaborates on it in verse 5 and 6. Here's the truth that we must come to know. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. And men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Here is the gospel in summary form. The reality is that all of us are at enmity with God. None of us, all of us have turned away. There's no one who's righteous. No one's good. And so because of our enmity with God, God sent one mediator to make peace between 
mankind and God. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? He gave himself on the cross as a ransom for all. We're talking about freedom and liberty. He said the ransom is the price to free a slave. He paid the price to free us all from slavery to sin. This was the testimony given at the proper time when he was, came some 2,000 years ago. This is the truth of the gospel. And this is what must be known in order to be saved. And this was what Paul was about in his ministry, faith and truth. And really, we, we learn a very practical, real, a practical truth, uh, principle of ministry and the, of gospel ministry is that faith and truth go hand in hand. You must have the response of faith and you must have the tr- knowledge of the truth. Faith is a response to the truth. Faith must be in the truth that we come to know. You can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without truth, right? It's like a person says, you know, I know, I, I believe that I am saved. I believe sincerely that God, I'm going to go to heaven. But that yet you ask them, you follow them, they say, well, is, is Jesus God's son? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know anything else. I don't know if they, do not have, if they don't know anything about his substitutionary death, that he died in, in place on the, of the, for them on the cross. Then no matter what sincerely you believe about God, I believe in God, you might say. You can believe in God. The devils believe in demons believe in God, but they're not saved. It's more than just saying you believe in something, and you must believe in the truth of the gospel. But also at the same time, you have truth. And I think this is more the likely danger for us, particularly as a Bible church, okay? And I'm preaching to us because we're a Bible, teach, Bible preaching church. That we emphasize a lot of times the, having the accurate and right doctrine, right truth. We want to make sure we know the truth, and that's good. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you need that. We need that. But then we fall short. We stop with just be thinking, oh, I know the truth. It's intellectual. And we get puffed up in our pride when the truth ultimately has this effect upon us that it should humble us. It should humble us that we should then respond by believing and trusting in that truth. We must believe in that truth, the truth of the gospel. But faith and truth go hand in hand in the preaching of Paul's ministry, in our ministry, really. While Paul's ministry was about preaching the truth of the gospel, his ministry didn't just end with getting people saved. It didn't just end with getting people saved. You know, sometimes that's, that's how we are, right? We're like, oh, man, I just want to get somebody saved. And that's actually, that's a great thing. We all should uh, want that a little more to get people to get saved, to believe in Jesus. But Paul's aim is that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, which is according to what? To godliness. And here we see the main theme of our letter. This is the main theme of of Paul's uh, letter to Titus. The gospel truth leads to godliness. Justification leads to sanctification. Faith in the gospel leads to good works. Throughout this epistle, Paul is going to emphasize for believers the importance, if they, are saved, if they know the Savior, the importance of doing good deeds, being known for their deeds. Let's walk through Titus and look at all the emphasis on the word deeds and good deeds. In Titus 1.16, he warns about false teachers in their midst who profess to know God. 
But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You can say you know God all you want, but what does your deed say? Identifies who you are. They are worth, Titus 2, 7, Titus is an urge as, a, as, a one of the, as, a, as one of the young men to show himself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, etc. It goes on. Titus 2, 14 tells us how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. To, he wants to save us from our, the lawless deeds of our past, our sinful deeds of our past. But he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are then zealous for good deeds. That it, Christ saved us so that we would be zealous, eager to do good deeds. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Titus is to remind the believers to be ready for every good deed. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Now, in order to correct the, the very natural response to, to say that Christians are obligated to observe the moral law, it, can, it, it takes just a little step to say, well, then you have to obey the law in order to be saved. But that's going too far. That's a works salvation, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. And so Paul corrects that, that the, the tendency to go overboard. He says, no, God saved us not on the basis of deeds. He doesn't save us on what we do, which we have done righteous, but it's according to his mercy. It's God's mercy. Instead, deeds instead flow out of. They are a response. They're a natural consequence of being saved by God's mercy. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. And this is really the key verse in the book. Those who have believed God here are encouraged to be careful to engage in good deeds. We'll come back to that verse later at the end. And then Titus 3.14, at the very end of his uh, letter, Paul writes, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. To learn about it. It's not just going to happen automatically. You've got to learn. You need to learn to engage in good deeds, something that you can grow in. We can all grow in to be engaged and to meet needs of people. As a Bible teaching church, uh, we aim to teach the truth here. We want to teach biblical truth from which we would respond to that truth. But if we are teaching biblical truth correctly, then it should produce a response in our hearts, right? Because the Spirit's not powerless. He should produce a response in our hearts to strive towards godliness, Christ-likeness, to strive toward, to want to be eager to do good deeds for the glory of Christ. And if that's not the case in our lives, then there's either something wrong with what, what is taught or there's something wrong with those who are taught. And one of the kind of the underlying kind of warnings throughout this letter, this emphasis on conducting ourselves in, in, with conducting ourselves in such a way that reflects Christ, is that if our lives do not reflect the good deeds, the works that are that reflect Christ, then maybe our faith is not genuine. Maybe, okay. And that's a, it's just kind of something. And then we always examine our life for that. We ought to always. It's just a healthy examination. Well, we spent most of our time in that because that's Paul spends a lot of time, and that's our main theme. We'll go through the rest pretty relatively quickly. Is we see the third of Paul's ministry credentials, and that is his ministry assurance. This is the confidence in with which he serves. It is in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. As Paul ministers the truth 
of the gospel. He, he ministers. He does so on the basis of his hope of eternal life. It's this hope of eternal life drives everything that he does. It makes everything. Because Paul, when you read uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about this, all these things he, which he endures as a minister. And we think, oh, that's just, that's just what you're a missionary. No, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know that. And we, we just ask, ask our Syrian brethren, okay, just, you know, are you, uh, is it persecution? Is that kind of just, you know, one of those things that rarely happens? They're going to tell you it happens all the time for those of us in Christ. We just, to some extent, are a little been sheltered here in America, maybe because we have not, uh, maybe for whatever reason. But persecution happens. Suffering happens for those who are in Christ. And the hope of eternal life is a strength for us. It makes all that we do in this, in this world worth it for Christ. It makes what you do, your sacrifices for Christ, then the, the, the suffering that you may face on behalf of Christ, it makes it really bearable, more bearable, because you know that at the end there is eternal life. And I remember at our retreat, someone just brought out a, a little rope and showed us, oh, this is our life, you know, a little tiny. And then there's a long, long rope. That's eternity, you know, wrapped it around the building a couple of times. It really, I love Francis Chan. But uh, anyways, uh, <clears throat> that was a great profound reminder. Here we are worrying about a little part of this inch right here when the rest of our lives is going to be shaped by this eternal life that is ours in Christ. And here we are <laughs> worrying about the next four years, okay? So, <laughs> eternal life is our hope, brothers and sisters. Let, us, that, that, let, us, that, let that drive us to respond, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. Let us do the ministry that Christ has left us here on earth to do. Thirdly, the last mark of Paul's credentials... Oh, uh, Another cross-reference there is his ministry assignment. But at the proper time, manifested. God manifested this hope of eternal life for us, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. At the proper time refers to that time when Christ came on earth. There's this emphasis in, in the book of Titus on the appearance of Christ. That Christ came. He's the grace of God appeared. The kindness of God appeared. We'll see it in several places. Christ appeared at the proper time. And, that, and when he came, he brought about the manifestation of this hope of eternal life. That's in Christ that we have a hope of eternal life. But it's also in his word. It's the proclamation of this eternal life that Christ came. Mark 1.15 talks about when Jesus came, he came preaching the gospel. The gospel that leads to eternal life. But it's the word of eternal life, calling people to repent and believe. And that proclamation was entrusted eventually to the disciples in the Great Commission. But then on the road to Damascus, it was entrusted to Paul as well. That commission was, this commission was according to the commandment of God, our Savior. It was God's command, not man's will, that assigned Paul the task of proclaiming the word. And so we come full circle then, really, with this last uh, ministry mark. The Paul is a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who's committed to the preaching of the gospel because it's for the aim of the faith of those elect and for them so that they would come to the knowledge of truth. And he does this all in the hope of eternal life. He's not doing it for his own selfish gains. He's doing it for the glory of God to, to build up the, those whom he ministers the gospel with. On one hand, Paul's introduction serves to establish why Titus and the believers in Crete should listen to him rather than the false teachers in the midst. 
But on the other hand, his introduction is full of clues on what his mind is thinking about as he's about to elaborate in the rest of Titus. Clues on what his theme is. That truth, the knowledge of the truth, sound doctrine, faith, and the faith in that truth leads to godliness, leads to good deeds, good works. Well, to a lesser degree, the second and third introductory matters lead us there as well. And so we look at the recipient of this letter, and, but this is the last verse, so we'll kind of cover these a little quickly. The recipient is Titus. To Titus, he says, my true child in a common faith. Who is Titus? Well, this man named Titus is uh, referred to 12 times in the New Testament. He's uh, found uh, eight times in 2 Corinthians, twice in Galatians, once in 2 Timothy. And from those other passages, as well as Titus, we can gather a lot about who Titus was. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek convert to Christ. And he was one who was an uncircumcised Gentile. Now, we know that Jews were circumcised. And that was part of the Mosaic law. But he was an uncircumcised Gentile who had become a believer in Christ. And Paul, according to Galatians, Paul had brought him to Jerusalem along with him to Jerusalem, to show that here was someone who's a Gentile, uncircumcised, yet he had a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it was apart from obeying the law. Titus, and, and, and <clears throat> Titus, after that visit to Jerusalem, Titus would eventually become a missionary partner as well as a fellow worker of Paul, according to St. Corinthians. It seems that his ministry focused primarily on St. Corinthians, uh, on the, in, the, in the city of Corinth, according to St. Corinthians. And if you remember St. Corinthians, that was, a, that was a tough church. The Corinthians, they practically ignored uh, Paul. And so Paul had to write this severe letter to rebuke them. But Titus was a trustworthy fellow worker. And so Paul eventually took Titus along with him to Crete, where they eventually ministered the gospel there. But according to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he says, to, he wrote, he writes, I left you in Crete. So he actually leaves Titus in Crete. He doesn't, he, for whatever reason, Paul didn't, doesn't stay there. He leaves Titus and he gives him a very serious responsibility that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. As we're about appointing elders, that's the responsibility of leaders, of the church leaders, to recognize those whom God has called. That's, this is the task of Titus to do among the churches in, in Crete. And so this is Paul's ministry on Crete. Uh, we learn that from Titus chapter 3, verse 12, that he was invited by Paul to join him in Nicopolis, so he probably went to Western Greece after this. And then by the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4.10, Titus had gone on to Dalmatia. That's north of Greece. So he probably went to Nicopolis and Dalmatia. So he helped start a church in, I think, modern-day Yugoslavia. Tradition has it that Titus returned back to Crete, where he ministered until his old age. But here in our verse, Paul identifies Titus. He calls him my true child in a common faith. My true child. That's the same title that he gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy. My true child. But there he says, my true child in the faith. Here he calls him my true child in the common faith. Both essentially were spiritual sons of Paul. They were discipled by him. They served alongside him. And they were entrusted by Paul to shepherd and respond to the church in Ephesus, respectively, and the church in Crete. 
But what's the, why does Paul say here, and the, the different, the really, the, what stands out is he says, my true child in a common faith. Why does it say common faith? And we kind of just going to gloss over that. It's really just mm, no big deal. Common faith, they share the same faith. But there's a great significance in this because what's the difference between Timothy and Titus? Timothy is a Jew, I heard somebody say it. Titus is a Gentile. Timothy would have been circumcised. Titus, uncircumcised. And for, if you later on find, uh, we'll later on find chapter 1, verse 10, that the many of the false teachers in their midst were of the circumcision. So many people are going to say, well, who should I listen to? Should I listen to this group of people who are circumcised? They're Jewish people. They're Jewish background. They have a Jewish background. They probably know their stuff better than this guy. He's not even circumcised. So didn't Moses say that you should be circumcised? Why should I listen to this uncircumcised guy when I should listen to this guy who these people who are? So Paul says, basically uplifts Titus before the people of Crete and says, you are my true child in a common faith. We share the same faith, Titus. We may be different ethnically, but we are the same spiritually. We have the same faith. We have the same Savior, the same Lord, the same mediator. What Paul believes and preaches is what Titus believes and preaches. Their common faith trumps all ethnic solidarity. And that's what we, we as a church, we look out here, I hope we don't see predominantly one ethnic group only. I hope we only see Christians. We are Christians. We have this common faith, just as Paul has a common faith with Titus and with Timothy and with others. We have this common faith. Our ethnic differences, yes, they may, they, we, they may sometimes, they could divide us, but we can celebrate some of those differences because we are all one in Christ. And, they, and since they share a common, since Paul and Titus share a common faith, they both have a faith that produces godliness, which serves to exemplify further the main theme of this letter. The third and final introductory matter is the greeting. And he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Here's a, a very common greeting that Paul gives, grace and peace. It comes from, essentially these two terms come from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament term is peace, shalom. That was basically how one would wish a person, shalom, uh, peace, well-being. And the other is grace. That's a New Testament term. Grace to you. May God, you experience God's grace in our Savior, Jesus Christ. These are things that, and these are things that we, for without, none of, us none of us would be able to have salvation. We need grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. God's, both God's grace and peace not only come from God, but they come from our Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. In fact, chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus, God's grace is personified in Jesus Christ. What makes this greeting a little different, though, what makes it stand out compared to other greetings, is that Christ Jesus is given a title here, other than the common title. Usually when you read the other salutations, it'll be Christ Jesus our Lord. It'll be Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lord Christ Jesus. But here he's identified as our 
the Lord Christ Jesus our Savior. Yes, Christ is both Lord and Savior. But the use of Savior here, our Savior here, clues the reader to another common theme throughout the book of Titus. Really, it's just related to the main theme. That is that we have a Savior who is Jesus Christ. It's interesting, of the 12 times that Paul uses this term in his writings, in all the Pauline epistles, 13 of his books, half of those uses are found here in Titus alone. And you can see the the various references. Much of Paul's argument, really, in this letter is on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has appeared. That Christ is our Savior. In chapter 2, when he gives instructions to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves regarding their conduct, he bases it upon the appearance of our Savior. In chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. In chapter 3, when believers are told to conduct themselves with submission to government authorities, he bases that once again upon the appearance of our Savior in chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. And that makes sense. We are to, if we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our Savior, if we are to do good deeds, why are we to do it? Are we to do it just because it'll make us look good? It'll make us feel good. You know, have you ever volunteer somewhere? You just, oh, man, I feel so good. You get, mm, I feel like I feel good about myself. Well, that, that's true. Okay? You, you serve. You, you usually feel good. But that's not why we should serve. We, the reason why we should serve is not just because, well, I have to. <laughs> Hopefully that's not a re-motivation either. Not really just purely, but it's because of our Savior. Because someone, God sent my Savior who is the grace of God, who poured grace upon me that I did not deserve. He showed kindness to me when I did not show any kindness to him. He showed me this grace and kindness in his son, the manifestation of all grace and kindness. He's my savior, and he saved me from the sin that I deserved. And if, uh, and if it were not for his, this, my savior, I would be dead in my sin still, and you would be dead in your sin still. And because of our savior, therefore, that's why we want to we should want to, desire to live in a way that reflects our Savior, right? Yeah. That's, an, that's what you say, amen. Okay, that's what you say, amen. Yes. I know we don't do that here. So I wish we would. <laughs> and it's okay if you start doing that. <laughs> well, we've seen the... Our, we, we see... The sender, the recipient, the greeting, all pointing to us, really, the, the theme of this letter, that if we have the knowledge of the truth, if we know sound doctrine, if we have, if we have faith in that saint, we're trusting this doctrine, we're trusting the truth of the gospel, then it should lead us to godliness. It should lead us to godliness. In fact, as just said as a brief outline of this, the rest of this book, where we're going to go in the next two, three months, or four months or so, Truth and faith that leads to godliness, it's going to produce godliness in our church life in chapter 1. It's going to produce godliness in our community life, in our relation to one another. And it's going to relate to godliness in civil life, in our relationship to civil authorities and governmental authorities as well. And that's, going to be, uh, that's the outline of Titus. I want to end then just kind of going back to Titus chapter 3 verse 8, our key verse. This book is about a conduct manual. It's how we ought to conduct ourselves, those who are saved, saved in Christ. And here Paul writes in Titus 3.8, 
This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Well, Titus was to speak these things confidently. It wasn't optional. These are not things they say, well, you know, if you want to do good deeds, go ahead. But you don't have to. No, these are things that should, that those who have believed God will desire to do and will actually be careful, give consideration to, engage in good deeds. Brothers and sisters, we got uh, this, as I've been reading this book, I've been just taking, it's a, it'll serve as a mirror to, as it, to our lives. And we will ask ourselves, are we careful to engage in good deeds? We have right doctrine. We got the gospel. Are we careful to engage in good deeds? It starts off, of course, with the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the testifying. But there's also more, the demonstration and the manifestation of love, love for God, love for one another, our neighbors as ourselves, love for our enemies. You know, as Christians, I don't want to, I know we have a tendency to do it, but I don't want to see us on Facebook acting writing things unloving towards our enemies. We need to love, okay? Now, you can evaluate things critically, but let us be loving. Let us seek the good of those who are, who are lost. We ought to be a manifestation. When people look at us, they should see our good deeds and say, man, that's what the church is. I may, I may disagree with everything that they believe. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I don't believe there's a God but those Christians in that church, they engage themselves in good deeds. They might not like the part where we proclaim the gospel. But if we're showing love to those who are in need, if we're looking out for those who are disenfranchised, those who are strangers and aliens, those who are in, uh, uh, who are in broken homes, those who are orphans, those who are yet to be born, those who are disabled, those who are impoverished. If we're doing what we are called to do as a, as a church to, to remember the, those imprisoned and all the different ways that the church can manifest good deeds, the world will have no excuse to say those Christians are useless They can laugh all about what what we believe, but they will have nothing to say because we are careful to engage in the good deeds that God calls us to do because Christ is our Savior. He set the stage for us. He exemplified it throughout his ministry and life on earth. I mean, I hope that we study this book. We would take a good look at ourselves. I know for myself, I've been reading this book several times through. I've just been challenged. I'm in a challenge, brothers and sisters. I pray that you would challenge you, and hopefully in a good way. Uh, I know as a, it's good for us if we're young believers, because I know as a young believer, I, I do take the antinomian kind of view. I say, I'm saved. I can live my life any way I want, and I know God's going to forgive me. I, I love that, and I, I, I kind of lived like that for a while. I, was, I won't tell you what I was doing. But, it, <clears throat> you know, and... Maybe some of you young believers are like that. You say, well, I know God's going to forgive me. Yes, he will forgive you. But that's no excuse to live your life any way you want. Live the life that God wants you to live. But now here's a word for those of you that are kind of my age and older. I don't, hard to say for those who are older because maybe you figured it out already. 
But those are my age, kind of the midlife of my Christian spiritual life. I, got, I was realizing, man, I think I'm going through a midlife uh, crisis, if you will. <laughs> Is that I kind of realized as a pastor, you know, I've been Christian now for 20 plus years. I've come to realize that I think I've been coasting when it comes to good deeds. Yes, I go about my work as a pastor. I go about doing things, and I, there are things I do here and there. But I, when I see this trade, careful to engage in good deeds, and then I look at some of the, you know, just read this book, man. It's just constant conviction, realizing that sometimes myself, for myself and maybe for some of you, we've allowed ourselves to slide. We've not been careful to guard ourselves from our disobedience to the word of God. We need to look into the word of God once more, to examine ourselves in light of it, to, show, to see where we need to align ourselves more with what God's word says. Not because we do it to be saved, but we do it because we have a savior. Because of our savior. Because I want to reflect Christ. I want to live for Christ. Don't you? May Titus help us to do that for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we study Titus in the months ahead, may you take your word and show us, as a church primarily, first and foremost, how we can be better in engaging in good deeds. Beginning with just being faithful to proclaim the gospel in our world, but then also to show, show it through our love and our mercy in other ways that which we can minister to those in the world as well as those in our midst. Father, help us to be known as a church of Christ that does love you and loves the world and loves one another and even loves our enemies. Help us to be a lighthouse for the lost so that those who are, whom you have chosen will be drawn to yourself be drawn to our midst, drawn into our lives, <clears throat> and through the proclamation of the truth, they would come to know that truth and believe upon Christ and join us in the hope of eternal life that has been provided for us in our Savior, Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for your grace and your peace that you've given to us abundantly in him. May you continue to give us more as we strive to be a church that reflects your truths, a truth that leads to godliness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.